Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're going to be doing part three of our series on Baptist distinctives, the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. You've been ordained into the priesthood, Mark? <laughs> no. Well, Luther would say you have. Well, by your regeneration and baptism. Yeah, so three, uh, part three. There's actually eight parts. I think I said seven in the first one. So I've lost credibility among all Baptists. Eight parts because you have to add the S at the end of Baptist. Gotcha. To get separation church state in. Okay, uh, priesthood of all believers. It doesn't sound very interesting to Baptists nowadays because how many of us actually deal with the Catholic church? Right. Like none. So there's this idea of like, oh, yeah, we got that. We're not Catholics. That's easy. We're, that's not really a pressing concern for pastors these days. But I actually think it is. And it actually builds. So Reformation, it's a Reformation principle. that was recovered in the Reformation. And I think they did a great job. They didn't go far enough. And it was the Baptist who actually took the Reformation principle, priesthood of all believers, and actually put it into the life of the church. So congregationalism. Believer's baptism, things like that, are built on this this statement or on this uh, belief. So when we talk about priesthood, how do you figure out what something a word means in the Bible? In the New Testament, at least. Look it up in a dictionary. Look it up in a dictionary. But often it will just give you the sort of technical def- definition. What I found helpful is if the word is used a lot in the Old Testament, <laughs> the New Testament is probably playing off of that. Since most of the New Testament was written to people who had the Old Testament, and in some cases had it memorized. So we talk about Old Testament, or a priesthood of all believers. What did the Old Testament say about priesthood that was changed in the New Testament? If the New Testament makes a big deal about the priesthood of the believer, it's changing something that everyone already knew about, which was the priesthood of the Old Testament. So what did the priest do in the Old Testament? I think there's three things you can see. Uh, number one, they did... Sacrifices, which were meant to take away sins. So, fancy word, expiation. So, you brought your sacrifice to the priest, you laid your hand on it, he then killed it, and your sins were forgiven. You could never sacrifice your own animal. You had to take it to the priest to sacrifice it. Uh, secondly, intercession. If you ever walked into the Holy of Holies, what would happen? You'd die. Dragged you out by a rope. So, the priest would intercede between you and God, or the people and God. And you would never, you're never allowed inside the, the holy place. And then third, worship offerings. You would bring your offering, incense, bread, two turtle doves. I saw Home Alone too recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the priest would offer them for you. So that's what the Old, pre- old Testament priesthood did. So when we talk about the New Testament priesthood. New Testament priesthood is working off the idea of what the Old Testament priest did. So the key verse here is first Peter one or first Peter two nine. About two five it says or two four. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then go down to verse nine but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim and 
the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when you read that, you would say, oh, we're a priesthood like the Old Testament priesthood. Whatever the Old Testament priest could do must mean that we now as a royal priesthood can do it. So when you speak of the Old Testament or the priesthood of all believers, what most people think of when they hear priesthood of all believers and what most people tell me is that you can go to God on your own and that you don't need someone to intercede in between you and God. You go to Jesus. There's no man needed. But that's not what it means. That is what we call soul liberty or soul competence or individual soul liberty. That is the I in Baptist, not the P in Baptist. So priesthood of all believers is a corporate or collective role. And that's what First Peter says, you, plural, are being built up. Spiritual stones, a holy nation or holy priesthood, a spiritual house. Two nine, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So the plural, it's a group of people, his own special people. So it doesn't have, it's not talking about you individually. And this is really big because it gets confused a lot in America. We love to be individualistic. I'm trying to figure out what the greatest idol is in America. It's hard. It's competition, money, consumerism, which is kind of like money, power, of course, it's always one of them, politics. But individualism is right up there at the top. With, with all those other ones. So priesthood of all believers is not talking about individual soul liberty. It's a different thing. It's talking about what Christians are allowed to do for God. And it's interesting that, okay, so, so individual uh, priesthood of all believers was lost during the Middle Ages by the Catholic Church. It's actually before that a little bit. Martin Luther is sort of the main guy responsible for bringing it back. And he was good. But then some other characters in the 1800s during the Enlightenment took the idea and changed it, namely Schleiermacher and Hegel. You, those are your like, favorite reads. Oh, yeah. You read those all the time. All their works. Um, not many people may know those no- names, Hegel and Schleiermacher. But when you hear the term theological liberalism, that's where it came from. So 1700s, everyone believed sort of the Bible was true and that you either were a Christian or a non-Christian, and that was about it. Then Hegel Schleiermacher said, well, let's see if we can reconcile, reconcile the Bible and Christianity with these modern things, philosophy. And so they basically made Schleiermacher especially your experience as the judge, which then led straight into theological liberalism, uh, 1800s. Well, they said, hey, we like this idea of everyone's their own man, right? Individualism. So, And Luther was talking about, no, there's no pope, there's no church, it's just individuals or it's a priesthood of all believers so they started changing it into a priesthood of the believer so that you have the right to make decisions by yourself so it's funny now because you hear it all the time in conservative baptist circles not knowing that they're borrowing from liberal philosophers from the 1800s uh one guy one baptist historian winthrop hudson said that this emphasis on individualism has made every man's hat his church. <laughs> uh, and he says one of the most destructive things in America among Baptists is this emphasis on individualism. And they're u- and people are using this priesthood of all believers as sort of a theological cover for it by changing the word a little bit. And what happens is, practically, if you believe in the individualistic part, you get these members of your churches 
who sort of have their own church within your church. I think we've all seen that where they show up. They have this idea that they are the authority. And if they don't like what the church is doing, what do they do? Leave or (laughs) walk on down to the next church and, you know, church hopping or whatever. And a lot of these people have this very high view of their own authority. In other words, every man's hat is his church. And they'll, they'll hang out at your church until you start doing things they don't like. And then they exert their priesthood, as it were. Uh, another thing, this is even more uh, satanic. The idea that the father is the priest of the home. Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. I've, now, in the Old Testament, that was true. But it was also true that there weren't, well, in some cases, it was true. Like Abraham. Uh, but even then you had a class of priest. But this idea that the father, and I hear this all the time currently, that the father is the priest of the home and he sort of presides over it. Well, that's heresy. Uh, it's it's dangerous on multiple levels. It's patriarchal. It's um, Catholic a little bit, Roman Catholic. This idea of a hierarchical priest who represents other people. So the father is not the priest of the home. There is no priest of the home. That's Old Testament stuff. That's Roman Catholic. It's whatever you want to call it. Christians, especially Protestants, especially Baptists, should rebel at any idea that there is a priest over another person. And the father does not represent the home to God. He certainly doesn't intercede for them. And I usually find that in fundamentalism or other like-minded churches who are very domineering. So you're saying the illustration with the multiple umbrellas is not accurate? Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and it pops up on Facebook all the time. With God is the big umbrella. And then underneath that, Jesus? Is that right? Or is it Jesus is the top? I think Jesus is the top. Okay, so Jesus is the big underbre- un- umbrella. Underneath that umbrella is a smaller umbrella, and that's the Father. I guess Jesus, his umbrella is not good enough? Like, can't protect everybody. Protects, then underneath the father is the mother, a smaller umbrella. And even smaller than that is the children. So the children are protected not just by Jesus, but by the father and the mother. So apparently you need multiple umbrellas to protect people. Redundancy is good, right? Redundancy, yes, exactly. Um, obviously that's problematic. But I see it a lot. And it's the idea of this priesthood, this hierarchy. Which is exactly the same thing the Catholic Church has taught. They argued against the Reformation and they said that this idea will will cause so many splits that there will be no more unity. And that the average person is not capable of interpreting the Bible by themselves. And that there will be chaos. And that you need bishops and popes and priests and church to to protect you. And now you see it reemerging among conservatives. In that Jesus is not enough to protect you. You need the father. And the father's not even enough either for the children. You need the mother too. And that you, I think the most diabolical part is that the children and the mother cannot relate directly to Jesus. They must have the father go between them. I was told this personally. I was having difficulties as a teenager with my father. You were around for that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fun time in my life. Um, I think about 20 years, but I'm almost over it. <laughs> and so, you know, arguing, fighting, you know, I was like 17, maybe 18. No, I think it was 17. And just stereotypical stuff. And this member of our church called me 
older member, he was probably in his 40s at that time, had been to seminary, I believe, at a conservative, Baptistic, well, not a denomination with a lot of Baptists, Bob Jones University. <laughs> no need to sugarcoat it. And he called me in the midst of this and was trying to encourage me. And he said, just remember, you're in your father's home. So he's responsible for whatever happens there. So if you just go along with what he says, you'll be protected by his responsibility. And the rebellious teenager didn't like it. But now the rebellious 37-year-old is like, hmm, I should have tossed that in the trash. (laughs) As if I wasn't accountable for my own behavior. So as long as I just obeyed my parents, if they'd have made a mistake and did something wrong, I would be like, well, it's not my fault. I'm under the umbrella. And I think he actually used the word umbrella. Uh, as if a 16 or 17 year old couldn't read the Bible for himself and obey God and, and relate. I mean, come on. Spurgeon was pastoring a church at 17. So priesthood of all believers undermines not just the Catholic church, but these sort of uh, patriarchal Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, whatever, non-denominational, which places somebody between you and God uh, in the sense of representing you. So priest of all believers is all believers together relate to God or, or serve God because priesthood was about service. It wasn't about relating. It was about service. So all priests together serve and they don't have someone who serves for them. Now, you have to be careful because the Catholic Church also admits that there's a priesthood of all believers. Uh, so Second Vatican and they say uh, believers are all priests through regeneration and baptism, which sounds good, right? Yeah. But this priesthood differs in essence and not only in degree from the hierarchical priesthood. So it's like, yeah, everyone's a priest, but not as much of a priest as the ordained priest. And and I think you see that in churches a lot. Like, oh, yeah, everyone's a member of the church. Everyone's equal, but you're not, you're not as equal. Some people are more equal than others. Yeah, some people are more priests than others, more equal than others. And, and the danger of this is, why does that pop up? Sometimes it's heresy. But a lot of times it's just because those people are better at it. So who leads the worship? Uh, the person who's best at it. Which define, depends what you mean by lead. But what can happen is the pastor and his group of companions are just so much better at it that everyone's okay with him doing it. And you slip into this hierarchy. Luther says that the pastor, in fact, so he's distinguishing between the pastor, sort of the the guy at the top, and everybody. And he says the pastor is not there to do all the work. He's there to call the people to do the work. And so he says, this is exactly what one calls someone who lives in a tower to watch and to look out over the town so that fire or foe do not harm it. Therefore, every minister, bishop, overseer, uh, Therefore, every minister should be an overseer or watchman, so that in his town and among his people, the gospel and faith in Christ are built up and went out over foe, devil, and heresy. So, he's in the tower. Who's actually doing the work, fighting the devil? It's the people in the town. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, that's what a pastor's supposed to do. He's not supposed to do all the work, which I have to admit, it's easy to fall into. Because if you ever worked in the church, it's hard to get people you can rely on not just hard to get people to rely on. It's just easier to do it yourself. And so you tend to, you end up doing it all by yourself. And the people are content to let you do that. 
and it just builds and builds and builds until you get to the Catholic Church in a few hundred years. So if the priesthood of the believer is not individual soul liberty, it's corporate, uh, what, is, what are you supposed to do? So Timothy George, who's a Baptist theologian, says, Priesthood of believers, then, has more to do with the Christian service than with his or her status. So priesthood of the believer is what you get to do. That's how you serve. And you think of the Old Testament priests, that's what they did. They served. Mm-hmm. They didn't just walk around town with their gar- garments on, like, you know, got good me- deals at the restaurants. <laughs> they went and they worked. It was a service opportunity. So priesthood of all believers is how we get to serve. So what do we get to do as priests? You look at the Old Testament. What do the Old Testament priests get to do? First of all, sacrifices, expiation. We don't get to do that because of Hebrews. Well, <laughs> because of Jesus, but because of what Hebrews says where there was one sacrifice once for all. No more sacrifices made. So we don't do that. So that's where the Catholics really get it wrong when they have the, the mass and they sacrifice. Mm-hmm. They basically sacrifice. They don't basically. They actually say they sacrifice the body and blood of Christ, which defies the whole book of Hebrews. And so we as Baptists, Protestants, do not believe in that. But what else did they do? Well, they made intercession. Priests went between people and God. And you see that Jesus doing the same thing in John chapter 17 when he prays for every single believer that ever will exist. <laughs> okay, we don't have to do that. He's the high priest. But as a high priest, he's, he's, as a high priest, he's interceding for everybody. But as priests, we do the same thing. So the Bible calls us to pray people authority, for other believers, for the sick. Uh, so we intercede for others with prayers. So that's why in our church, we have a corporate prayer time. Uh, the intercession, prayer of intercession, where the whole church prays together. It's led by the elder, but it's meant for everyone to participate. Mm-hmm. And that's our corporate expression. And trying to teach people, this is how you understand your role, is come together and pray. And we also have people rotate for the other prayers. Which is, you know, not everybody likes it, but it teaches people that everyone can pray. We're all priests, and we should do it together. And so the corporate gathering is the best place to teach that. Uh, better than books and seminars, like just do it on Sunday morning. If you teach it every week Sunday morning, people will get it eventually. So if you want to teach people to pray corporately, pray corporately Sunday morning. Uh, side note. Then worship offerings. So in the Old Testament, the priest would offer the worship, burn the incense, kill the lamb. The New Testament, same thing. Hebrews 13, 15 says we offer a sacrifice of praise. Then verse 16, good works. So we're offering good works. Romans 15 talks about offering evangelism, sort of reaching people. And in fact, in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says the same thing, or 2, 5. You also are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And what are those? Well, verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation, that you may proclaim uh, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Proclaim it to who? Well, to each other, mm-hmm. and then to the rest of the world. So evangelism. So every single believer should pray, praise, share the word. In fact, Luther says this. The priesthood is properly, properly nothing but the ministry of the word. And then he gives this warning, since the ministry of the word is for everybody. Let's talk about this congregationalism, who's responsible, everybody. Therefore, uh, whosoever, therefore, does not know or preach the gospel is not only no priest or bishop, but he is a kind of pest to the church, <laughs> who under the false title of priest or bishop 
or dressed in sheep's clothing, actually does violence to the gospel and plays the wolf. So priests offer up spiritual sacrifices, uh, primarily preaching and teaching the word to one another, through song, through praises, through good works. And if you don't, he's a kind of pest to the church. And he's talking about the Catholic Church specifically, but it applies today. Any preacher that gets up and doesn't preach the Bible, he's defying his priesthood, and everyone listening to him is doing the same thing. And so the priesthood of all believers puts a responsibility for actually serving, ministering the word on everybody. And that's how the Bible talks quite a bit about the word, the ministry of the word. The ministry means service. So whose job is to do the ministry of the word? Well, everyone who's a believer, everyone who's a priest. And since we're all priests, we should all be doing that, that sort of thing. So yeah, so Luther says that there are, he gives a list of things that priests do in the New Testament. They preach, teach, proclaim the word. That's number one. They baptize. They administer the communion. They bind and loose sins. They pray for others. They sacrifice and they judge doctrine and spirits. Now it's funny. Luther was a, I guess, Lutheran. But when you read that list, and Luther was right on the priest of the believers, and that's why everyone's following him. It sounds like a Baptist church, and specifically a congregational church. Preach and teach the word, baptize, minister, communion, bind and loose sins. This is from Matthew chapter 18. Mm-hmm. Pray for others, judge doctrine and spirit spirits. So the priesthood together, corporate, holy nation, holy priesthood comes together and does all these things. Now, we're supposed to do them individually, but it's sort of subordinate to the whole priesthood. So when you have someone show up in your church or you show up in your church with this idea of you are going to determine how you serve because you are, you know, a believer, you're practically denying the priesthood of all believers. The way it should work is you all come together and you all decide together. Uh, I know the word for that would be congregationalism for those out there who aren't convinced yet. (laughs) We're working on it. Uh, Don't let abuses of other churches of congregationalism lead you away from what the Bible says. Because I see that happen a lot. And I think what's really happening is people who call themselves congregational are not being congregational. They're not actually following the priesthood of all believers. The pastor is either setting himself up as sort of a pope or the people are not unified. Neither of which are biblical. Pastor is the pope. Well, that's just Catholicism in a, you know, a little tiny church. And people just sort of at each other's throats. How is that a corporate, holy nation, unified around the gospel? And so you can say congregational, but you really operate more like a democracy or a monarchy. And whatever you have in your bylaws, whatever your business meeting notes say, if you're operating like a democracy, you're not a congregational government. And if you're operating like a Catholic church with the Pope at the top, it's not congregational. So priesthood of all believers... It should, it's a call to action. So it, for most of the people who listen are leaders in the church. It's God has given you permission to get all the people in the church to work together. You, God has given, well, he's not given us permission. He's given us a command, a call to get every single person in the church to sing. So why should we have corporate singing? Because we're all priests, all offering praises. And if on Sunday morning you have primarily groups of people singing, you're teaching a different lesson. That's why corporate congregational singing is so important. Uh, who should teach and preach? Everyone who has the word. Every priest. Obviously, there's different settings. Everyone can't preach at the same time. Uh, so pastors have the right duty calling, and individual Christians too, to urge one another to fulfill their duty and calling and privilege as a priest 
which is to be done corporately in a church. And if that were to happen, pastors wouldn't get burnt out so much. People wouldn't sit in the pews for decades and be no more mature than they were than when they joined the church. You wouldn't have these sort of entertainment model churches. I hear a lot of like conservatives say, especially independent Baptists, talking about the lights on the stage and the dress as if those are entertainment concepts. But I would say that old style of the pastor performing on stage during his sermon uh, is more entertainment driven with these, these performance minded conservative models. You can be a conservative and performance driven. And I think it's an easy, um, it's, it's easy to say, Oh, look, they have lights on the stage, colored lights. Cause we don't have colored lights on our stage. Too much work. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what makes it performance. It looks like a nightclub. It's like, whatever. Um, the real thing is, is the pastor leading the people to do the work? And does the Sunday morning service reflect that? Because Sunday morning is where the church comes together as a corporate body. It's sort of like the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament where the whole nation came together. Well, now Sunday morning is that if you walk into our churches on Sunday morning, would you get the feeling that it's a corporate priesthood working together? Or would you get the idea that there are certain people who are more priests than others? And they're usually up on stage. And so I think we should model church services around the theology of being, especially being a Baptist, and let everything teach. The way we sing, the way we preach, who preaches, how they preach, uh, who gets to participate, how we set up the, the order of service, the kind of music we sing. I'm not against contemporary music, but a lot of it's just hard to sing together. It's almost, you got to listen to K-Love every day or you can't sing the songs. <laughs> Nothing is K-Love. Is K-Love a na- national? I have no idea. I've never listened to K-Love. Well, good for you. I'm a Christian. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, Shine FM 95.1. I think K-Love's national. I don't know. It's only on the... Insert whatever your local contemporary oh, Christian yeah. station is for K-Love. I only know because when I, my wife borrows my car, oh, yeah. she changes the channel mm-hmm. to that. And you quickly change I the dial. I quickly change the dial back to good music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with the words. The words are uplifting and biblical for the most part. Uh, I just don't like the sound of it. Uh, so anyway, I will tell you what kind of music I do listen to. Would you admit what kind of you listen to? Well, I don't particularly like You listen, listen, you listen to music. podcasts, don't you? Yeah. That's what I do, too. It's easier to select. Though if um, Lecrae dropped a new album... I would listen to that. But yeah, podcasts are the way to go. Anyway, about music. Some of the songs, you, you, they're just, they're made for to be sung by small groups or trained singers. And it's not the songs are bad or wrong. They're just hard for, for a bunch of people to sing together, especially if they're older people who are used to a different style of music or people who don't listen to that kind of radio very much. Or people with limited musical training. Yeah, some people just aren't very good at singing. But if we're all believers and we're all supposed to offer sacrifices of praise, then we shouldn't sort of farm that out to groups. Some formats can be helpful to get the congregation to sing. And if that's true, use it. But the theology is what drives our pragmatism. And there's nothing wrong with doing different things. There's nothing wrong with having colored lights on the stage or new music or whatever. As long as the priesthood of believers is being worked out practically. The whole church is gathered together to worship God together. And not just a few people who are good at it or trained or have been there a long time. 
So it's easier said than done. Even you know our church struggles with that. And it's easier just to let people know what they're doing, do things, including the pastor. But it's not helpful and it's not biblical. So just read the Bible and do what it says, and everything will be fine, and you'll be a Baptist. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com, or you can message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can also join our Facebook group. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice. 